Hello, hello. Welcome back to Sexuality, a podcast that examines queerness in media. I'm your host, Lisa, and today I'm joined by Pan. Hi, Pan. Hi. How's it going? Going great. I'm so excited to be chatting. Yeah, so what are we doing today? What are we talking about? Well, so today we're going to be talking about uh, Kuroko's Basketball, which is one of my favorite animes. And uh, yeah. Yeah, that's exciting. So I uh, hadn't even heard of this anime before you asked me if we could do it. So <laughs> what a, can you give us a little bit of like background on it? Like what's your history with this? What kind of brought you into Kuroko's Basketball? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm in the middle of a rewatch right now. I had first watched it a couple of years ago, and then I'm uh, in the middle of rewatching it right now with my roommate who hadn't seen it before. And um, I guess I can give you a little like overview of the show for yeah, folks that'd be who great. aren't yeah. familiar with it, so we'll have a little bit of context of uh, of what we're talking about. So um, the the show is about these uh, high school basketball players. So one of the main characters, Kagami, is this uh, guy who grew up in America, although he's originally from Japan, and he basically moves back to Japan for his first year of high school and decides to become the best basketball player in the country and he meets this other first year Kuroko who sort of declares within the very first episode that he's going to be the shadow to his light and help make him the best basketball player <laughs> in Japan and then the the enemies or enemies <laughs> the opponents that they encounter throughout their various basketball games are generally uh, Kuroko's former teammates from his middle school basketball team which was called the generation of miracles and they all have these like totally sort of disproportionately amazing basketball powers um and uh the central kind of relationship for the show is between uh, Kuroko and Kagami uh and their sort of shadow and light uh relationship kind of developing and, and taking on these various um various opponents as they move through the basketball tournaments yeah <laughs> and stuff i didn't realize um, and, um i didn't realize that uh the generation of miracles was his basketball team <laughs> exactly so they were this it's so funny because apparently this generation of miracles was when they were in middle school and they yeah. were like demolishing all the other middle school <laughs> basketball teams and now they've all the generation of miracles have all gone on to different high schools and now they're in high school basketball but oh. watching the anime if you didn't know that you'd be like mm, these are like 20 year olds like <laughs> dude, they're like eight feet tall and like stacked so it's very funny when you did you know suddenly out of nowhere they're like ah oh, yes back in middle school last year you're like uh in in what <laughs> well kuroko is kind of small like except for kuroko yeah <laughs> uh. um pan did you actually want to do your acknowledgement of country yeah absolutely so this was something i was gonna i was gonna mention at the beginning and then kind of we just dove, dove right into it so um uh yeah i guess i can kind of introduce myself for a second before yeah, we get, get further into this so my name is sarah beth but i go by pan online and i am uh calling in from new brunswick canada which is just a little bit north of maine if you're more well for people who are more familiar with that um and uh the area that i'm calling you from is on unceded willistic way and Mi'kmaq uh territory uh, and the reason i wanted to mention that in this particular context is because um 
I think it's important to bear in mind when, for me, when I'm like having conversations where I'm coming from a marginalized perspective, like in this case, as a queer person talking about, you know, queer representations in media, um, to kind of remember that I'm also doing so from a bunch of other identities and, and particularly like being from the position of being a settler on the land that I'm on and all the privileges that that entails. Um, so I want to kind of, uh, bring that uh, perspective and that awareness to uh, a discussion um, where I'm also coming from a marginalized perspective. So, Yeah, yeah, intersectionality. That That rocks. (laughs) Yeah, so thank you for that. Um, All right, so um, I thought I would start this off, this episode off, just by talking a little bit about um, queerness in Japan and the history of Mm -hmm. queerness in Japan, just because I didn't actually talk about that Um, in my last anime episode so I thought I'd just go over it now Um, so I'm going to give a brief overview of queerness in Japanese media from the Edo period to now Uh, obviously my summary is not going to do the entirety of Japanese queer culture justice but I am going to go over what I found to be relevant in the context of this discussion Japanese culture is immensely diverse and no one single text can accurately capture it and I'm certainly not trying to do that with this brief summary Um, The text I consulted is called Japan's Queer Culture by Mark J. McClelland. Um, I'm going to hazard a guess that he's not native native Japanese, but has written um, several works about Japan's queer culture, including the book called Male Homosexuality in One Japan, and has translated some work from Japanese into English. So I guess he would be considered maybe an expert. I'm maybe... Uh, as someone who's, Let's assume so. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to assume so. Uh, as someone who's never studied Japanese, studied Japanese, I have no idea how to pronounce Japanese terms, and I'm going to fuck it up, so I apologize. So during the Edo period, which was 1603 to 1867, there were no normative connection. There was no normative connection made between gender and sexual preference because all men, whether samurai, priest, or commoner, were able to engage in both same and different sex affairs. At the same time, men's same-sex relationship were governed by a code of ethics described as nanshoku, male eroticism, or shudo, the way of youths. As well as being a conspicuous social reality, these relationships were widely represented in the culture of the period in art, literature, and on the stage. Growing literacy led to a more proletarian readership in the Taisho period, which was 1912 to 1925 which saw what has been described as a hentai boom, the first of several explosions of interest in queer sexuality that were to sweep the Japanese media over the next half century. There was a cultural cultural fad known as eroguro nansensu, or erotic grotesque nonsense, which was common which was prominent in the popular culture of the late 1920s. It was during this period that same-sex love emerged as the most popular Um, of a handful of terms approximating a translation of the European concept of homosexuality. Throughout the 1930s, great numbers of men were drafted into the military, thus delaying the marriage of bachelors and separating married men from their wives, thereby encouraging the development of greater intimacy between men. Accounts published in this early post-war period do suggest that relationships between um, senior soldiers and young recruits sometimes had a sexual element. One text dating from 1952 and entitled Homosexuality on the Battlefront points out that veteran officers choose for their orderlies soldiers who are beautiful youths, bishonen, and that these boys were usually used as a substitute for women and an outlet for sexual desire, seyoku no hagaguchi on the front line. 
there is considerable circumstantial evidence suggesting that homoeroticism and a certain context explicit explicit sexual interaction was encouraged by the process of sex segregated sex segregation that accelerated as japan's position in the war gradually deteriorated from the early 1950s a range of magazines that had much in common with the 1920s fad for publications specializing in erotic grotesque nonsense appeared sporting titles such as sexual moral science and sexual moral storybook (laughs) i know these magazines courted a readership of intellectuals and cultured persons who were interested in analyzing and accounting for the apparent sudden proliferation of queer or perverse desires after the war there were i just love that idea of like let's just let's just study that we're just doing some (laughs) science here this is all very uh all very nothing personal or individual or intimate about this let's <laughs> let's do some science let's study. yeah absolutely well there were yeah. like definitely sex scientists um yeah. mas- that show masters of sex was uh masters and johnson who were mm-hmm. um master dr masters was a uh like a sexologist or something like that and they um yeah. they just studied sex together and there's a great show about it it's awesome it's got the guy from um martin sheen it's got martin sheen from um, oh okay i haven't seen that yet i've yeah. heard a lot about it yeah he's a, he's really good anyways at, yeah anyways continuing on <laughs> i interrupted you <laughs> <laughs> there were many rather upbeat accounts of non-heterosexual interests and practices these upbeat accounts are most evident in the number of roundtable discussions staged for the magazines in which queer individuals such as cross-dressing male prostitutes homosexual bar goers and female homosexuals discuss their lives often contradicting contradicting or qualifying the opinions of experts the early 1950s magazines contained personal columns that aided men, particularly those living outside the major cities, to network together, and a number of organizations were established, ostensibly for the study of male-male sexuality, including cross-dressing, um, bearing in mind that cross-dressing in this instance probably referred more to transgender people, but there's not a whole lot of information you know, as we talk about these things. Um, yeah. So the earliest and most long-lived of these groups was the Adonis Club, which published a newsletter and held regular meetings between 1952 and 1962. The group's new- newsletter was a mixture of highbrow essays, often concerning hex- he- oh my god, often concerning homosexuality among historical figures, personal ads, and erotic fiction and illustrations. Commencing with Barazoku. Um, in 1971 there has been a constant stream of commercial successful men's magazines some of which lasted for several decades with circulations of up to 40,000 however since the late 1990s when the easy availability of pornographic material and networking spaces via the internet cut into their sales these magazines have begun to go under with Barazoku ceasing publication in 2004 after 30 years Minami Tashiro, editor of the gay magazine Add-On, was brought to the attention of the International Lesbian and Gay Association. Japan had a pride parade. Um, that first, the first pride parades were moderately successful. Um, the first in August 1994 attracted over 1,000 participants, and the next year this success um, was repeated um, when the participation doubled. But frequent disputes over the early parades are evidence that ILGA Japan had never been able to establish itself as a broad and representative group for sexual minorities. Minami found that gaining any sort of consensus among the queer community on issues such as coming out, 
HIV prevention measures and the need for public activism was extremely difficult. The younger <laughs> members, yeah, so that kind of was a bit sad. But, um, you know, it leads the way for other things, like the younger members of Minami's group um, split off to form OCUR, Organization for Moving Gays and Lesbians. OCUR has consistently, has consistently taken a more proactive stance towards the media and professional and governmental organizations than earlier groups. One of its key strategies has been to deploy the notion of the Tojisha, originally a legal form of referring to the parties concerned in litigation, and conceive of people expressing a range of queer identities and desires as sexual minorities, and as thus having rights akin to other disadvantaged groups in society. The various debates surrounding queer cultures in Japan resemble in large part to similar discussions going on in the context of Western societies. To an extent, the recent designation of certain groups as sexual minorities has proven enabling in terms of legislation and has aided in gaining access to public facilities, public housing and healthcare. However, this minoritizing view has been criticized by some as being assimilationist, as having a few privileged individuals, as offering a few privileged individuals the opportunity to normalize their status and fit into an already existing sex and gender system requiring only slight modification. Mm. Others professing more constructivist understandings of identity and desire feel that the hetero system is itself the problem and that true equality for all cannot be achieved so long as the manner in which Japanese society continues to create and sustain categories of other remains unexamined. So there's this, uh, this article by Masami Tamagawa in which they discuss the root of the concept of coming out to parents in Japan in uh, a socio-cultural analysis of lived experience. Um, so the demoralization of homosexuality was tightened in the 19th century with influence from Europe. Um, the Meiji constitution and the French influence Keikan Code of 1881 condemned homosexuality as a deviant act and demoralized men appropriating femininity. Um, for the, the lesbian element to this, the sapphic element is that um, it has been suggested that as long as women bore children, they were allowed to engage in same gender romance. So Oof, that's a whole that's a whole conversation. <laughs> oh, I know right that there. we are not getting into. Wow. <laughs> but I thought I'd just mention it in case anyone was uh, interested. Just one thing, yeah. maybe. Um, so some queer individuals in Tamagawa's research said that they felt more included in LGBT subcultures of manga and anime. However, most of these depictions of queer romance were only sexualized pornographic publications known as yaoi and yuri mm-hmm. so we know yaoi yaoi not yaoi yaoi to be boys love manga and anime um as a series of as stories of romantic relationships between effeminate young boys which grew in popularity in the 1970s these publications are popular among fujoshi or young women mostly heterosexual who enjoy reading male male romance which is a thing that you will find in any fandom anywhere <laughs> all over the world, in any <laughs> in any sect of the internet. Um, common features of yaoi are men who look like and sound like women, known as bishonen, who are often coupled with larger, more masculine men. These types of coupling asserts the heteronormativity of traditional relationships in which one must be feminine and one must be masculine. With this trope, many yaoi also depict abuse and negative power dynamics, which further demoralize male-male romances for a heterosexual audience. 
Uh-huh. Yes. So there are currently no major laws against homosexual activity in Japan, but same-sex marriage is not yet legal at a national level, um, and sexual orientation is not protected is not a protected class in the Human Rights Code. So we still have some. So we can see that there are still some issues regarding queerness and uh, homosexuality in Japan, but. Uh-huh. Um, so it is, um, I would say it's probably similar to some of the um, conversations that people have in the West. But, yeah. Uh-huh. So that's a little bit of the history of queerness in Japan. Obviously not taking into account every single thing that's ever happened. But uh, hopefully that kind of sets the tone um, of the understanding of Queer representation in Japan, at least as pertains to this uh, episode. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So um, that th- idea you were just talking about of the difference between um, kind of uh, seeing queerness as a sort of minority or something that's yeah. set apart from the mainstream and like trying to normalize it in a way by making it fit more closely with the mainstream versus the idea of just kind of dismantling mm. the whole the whole concept is something that kind of ties into something I wanted to talk about with um, uh, related to Kuroko's basketball in particular so um, maybe I can just talk a little bit about how the how this why this show is of interest to me, in my opinion, in talking about queer representation, because it's not, um, it's not, there's no explicit, uh, like, queer characters or yeah. anything like that. Like, it's all yeah. subtext in no, this no, very please, kind oh, of yeah, talk common, like, right. sports anime's way, where you have basically all these, like, sad gay boys in love, but we never <laughs> explicitly say that that's what's happening. Um, and uh, so, in this... Uh, uh, particular situation the um, of the anime that I wanted to talk about is this sort of arc that's about halfway through the second season it's about three seasons but they're like 24 episode seasons so it's like almost 80 episodes so we're at about episode 40 or so in the segment that um, yeah. I uh, wanted to chat about and it's kind of an arc it's the arc of this one particular basketball game between uh, Kuroko and Kagami's team and uh, the team that is headed up by Aomine, who is uh, Kuroko's former teammate, who used to be the, the light to his shadow. So when they were on their previous team, Kuroko had this same function of like, um, uh, he has this thing where he has no presence, so people don't notice him, so he kind of like sneaks around the, yeah, I was, the, the basketball I was very court much... and like does these totally yeah. ridiculous passes that nobody sees coming. I was so very he, much then, wondering... Then, what was um, that? I was very much wondering, like, why it's called Kuroko's basketball when he seems like the wallflower and wasn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and the whole, like, Kuroko has this very, like, manic pixie dream girl kind of energy to him. Although, because the whole, the whole show is about basically these former teammates of his who have become jaded due to their totally overpowered abilities he then one by one sort of teaches them through beating them at basketball that his (laughs) way of basketball which relies on not um not like uh, talent beyond imagination but instead relies on teamwork and love of the game and trust between team (laughs) players and things like that is in fact superior and then one by one these 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 uh, other characters are oh 
you know, rediscovering their love of the game and learning to rely on their teammates and all of this stuff. So he's, he's, Kuroko has this very, um, uh, uh, yeah, like I was mentioning, kind of manic pixie dream girl thing going on where he's basically just there to fix everybody else's <laughs> broken perspective on life. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. So he, so Kuroko needs to be paired with a stronger player mm. who is going to then take advantage of his, um, uh, passing skills to actually make like make baskets and score and, and yeah. games. So he used to be paired with Aomine on their old team and now he's paired with Kagami on their new team and so this episode uh, or this kind of arc starts with this episode where they all run into each other at a hot spring and there's this like rivalry between Kagami and Aomine over like who is the better light to Kuroko's shadow yeah. and so it's, it's, def- it's set up it's set up a lot as a kind of um uh current partner ex-partner kind of situation yeah i kind of got that yeah (laughs) yeah exactly but one of the ways uh basically the thing it's quite obvious if you're watching the show with any kind of like subtext lens on that it's it's there's something to kuroko and kagami's relationship that is beyond Mm. the other um friendships in the show the show is almost all male characters and they're all on these various basketball teams and have these histories together and are friends and then there's this one that's kind of elevated in some ways um separate from from all the other ones and um but it's never it's never made explicit it doesn't become a romance it's all subtext um and so one of the things uh, the thing that i find really interesting about this that i wanted to kind of talk about is this idea that by uh, not making the relationship follow uh, sort of standard romantic tropes um, in order to kind of hide it or censor it in a way, because of the things you have to do to establish the relationship and affirm it and develop it, there's this sort of irony where you actually end up making it more queer <laughs> instead of instead of hiding it or, or pushing it down. And I'll kind of, I'll kind of explain what I, um, what I mean by that. So for, uh, example, the, one of the ways that we know as viewers that there's something about Kuroko and Kagami that's different from all these other characters is that they're very conspicuously absent. Anytime there's a scene where the other boys are like ogling over their girl classmate or, um, like this hot springs episode I was talking about, all the guys are trying to like peep to the other side of the hot spring, except Kuroko and Kagami who are just mysteriously absent during that part of the scene. So that keeps coming up where you'll, um, not a lot, cause most of the show is like 90% basketball, <laughs> but <laughs> occasionally you'll have this episode where there's a female character and she's gotten all rained on and her t-shirt's all wet and like, very like annoying for me as a viewer to watch. But, um, uh, are you sure? Very... That's like, sounds exactly like what I'd be into. Yeah. <laughs> no, but only only because it's just set up that way so that the guys can then over oh, her, not because yeah. of I mean, like as oh, a woman yeah. I'm offended <laughs> and as a lesbian I'm delighted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> Um, so Kuroko and Kagami are not particularly delighted or offended. They just have like no reaction <laughs> whatsoever every time this happens. And it's like either they're not even in the scene or they're literally there just being like, yo, could you just 
tell me what's wrong or like put a shirt on or something. I'm, this is, I don't have time for this. (laughs) Um, so the thing I find interesting about that is like, so as a show, we're trying to establish that there's something like other or different or about these characters and, but because we can't show what they are, it's instead like showing what they're not. So basically the show is mm. telling you over and over, mm. Girl you're not interested in women. They're not attracted to this. They're not thrown off by this or anything, um, which it ends up uh, sort of invoking what I view as this like even more powerful version of queerness where instead of saying, okay, there's this, there's all these categories of people uh, who fall under the umbrella of queer? You know, we got our two S L G B T Q Q A I, and if you if you're part of any one of this laundry list of identities, then you are under the queer umbrella. Yeah, like, that's cool. That's one way of looking at it. But there's another. There's this other way of looking at it that is like sort of queer as anything other than mainstream or anything other than heterosexual, and that's what you end up invoking when when you can't. When you don't have the option of saying, okay, they're gay, we can tell because they kiss each other, it's like, well, they're, they're something, but all we really know is that they're not straight yeah. as far as we can tell. Um, and so to me, you actually end up kind of invoking this more powerful form of queerness by trying to avoid uh, uh, naming it mm. or, um, or checking it off on a, on a checklist. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting, yeah. yeah. So, like you were saying, it's kind of establishing what they're not. So it's kind of defining them by what their sexuality isn't. Exactly. And so kind of the what I find interesting about that is that it, it ends up, to me, um, it's almost a more... <laughs> because we're being queer-baited by yes. the show, <laughs> it ends up being a more inclusive portrayal of queer people and queer relationships because they never managed to actually lock anything down so mm-hmm. what, what basically like this is going to kind of come off as i'm like queer baiting is actually great for all of these <laughs> reasons and that's not where i'm it's not where i'm going with this <laughs> at all but i'm kind of like the the these sort of ironies that are interesting to me with these kind of what i'm calling queer baiting situations I, I see some sort of interesting benefits to them, but that's not to say that that that's sufficient or that, that we shouldn't have like actual supportive normalized representation in a perfect world where we had that, if we had uh, um, better representation of queer sexualities and relationships in media, these kinds of representations would still be kind of interesting to yeah, me and actually yeah, um, like there's a sort of tie into this because I'm I'm ace and like as an ace person there's some almost kind of advantages to not having the relationship uh made explicit in canon or or whatever um I'll kind of get to that I guess in a in a bit so one one of these kind of ironies to me is that you end up with this more inclusive representation of what queerness can be when you're sort of shoehorning yourself into defining it by what it's not. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So um, what were the main shifts that you were looking at in the that made you feel like 
it, there were some queer elements to the show. I mean, definitely the Kagami Kuroko situation, and then there's a sort of the casting of Aomine as the kind of ex in that uh, in that situation. So in mm. these two episodes uh, that we were specifically looking at, there's um, they're in the middle of this basketball game against Aomine, and Aomine is sort of defeated Kuroko, one of Kuroko's moves, um, and Kuroko gets pulled out of the game, and then there's kind of a timeout in the middle, and uh, Kuroko's off, like, outside of the stadium, like, looking yeah, really downtrodden. So you have this trope and... of, like, everybody's over there, and then one person wanders off, and Aww. then the, like, love interest kind of comes up behind them and is like, hey, are you doing okay? <laughs> so that's exactly what happens. So Kagami comes out and is like, you know, what like what's you know are you okay and she says at one point like well like you don't seem like you need cheering up like that's what i came out to do but you seem kind of okay like what what's you know anyway um so you get this really um uh you get these really uh, sort of the usual like romance tropes um with the two of them where they always end up kind of off by themselves having these little side conversations um from from everything else that's going on and then like Kuroko didn't bring his jacket so Kagami's brought his jacket he's like you're gonna get cold and like puts his jacket on oh my feelings it's hard I mean it's hard to and then and then they get back to this basketball game and and the whole like the second episode out of these two that we're looking at is uh is basically Kagami um like discovers his true power by uh, seeing Kuroko cry yep. on the sidelines. Yep. <laughs> oh my god, they're so gay. <laughs> 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 yeah. So so that's uh. He, and then um, a couple episodes later, because it takes him like eight episodes to get through this arc. Uh, Kuroko finally gets his like fist bump from Aomine because when Aomine <laughs> abandoned him way back in the day he never returned his fist bump so you get this like super dramatic like they win the game and then Kuroko kind of passes out so Kagami like lifts him up and then he like he's like oh can I have my fist bump and Aomine is like oh I guess so and they have their and so then the climax of this whole eight episode arc is Kuroko and Aomine fist bumping like it's like the, the kiss in the rain of like your regular romantic thing is this little fist bump and then but also it's so interesting because kagami's there so let me just i'm glad you're finding this entertaining so many feelings okay so here's the thing about this right is if this was like because we've never explicitly defined this is a romantic story kuroko and amine are exes and now kagami is the new partner ideas of like monogamy exclusivity jealousy things like that they're kind of they're and they're touched on but because they can never be totally explicit about it you actually end up having room for flexibility in how these relationships resolve so Kagami and Kuroko have this little heart-to-heart outside um where Kuroko is talking about how he really wants Aomine to rediscover his love of basketball and Kagami's like yeah like that well I guess we all we can do is play the game and see what happens like he's Kagami and Aomine have this rivalry that's very much about like who gets to be Kuroko's partner, mm. but it's not, it doesn't automatically follow that Kuroko can only have a bond with one of them. So then you get to this ending of this game and it's 
they're both there. Like, yeah. I mean, this is like basically the most contact you get between Kagami and Kuroko too, after he passes out and they have to do like the lineup at the end of the game and bow to each other. And Kuroko's still like hanging off with Kagami and like, what? But it's, it made it, he gets his fist bump with Aomine and Kagami's literally right there holding him up. Like you don't have this, um, this automatic, it doesn't fall into these patterns of, okay, well it's, they it can only be one. They, this, um, you have to choose one or the other, these like romance tropes. And so this irony has come back again. So we're about halfway through the, the show at this point. So to me, this is an example of like affirming, that there's this this relationship between Kuroko and Kagami, like it's all about how Kagami, like I said, discovers his true power because Kuroko's so sad and he doesn't ever want him to Aww. be sad like that, and so he like Aww. unlocks his um, his like abilities. Um, but then, because we're not following these romance tropes, you we end up invoking this like even more powerful sort of queer subversion of het romance culture. Mm where we can have interesting, interesting resolutions to these kind of um, uh, rivalry, like, you know, romance-coded rivalry situations. Yeah, like, you know, if um, yeah. if one of them had been female, then the resolution would have been a kiss. And right. it's like that, great, and, like, wow. <laughs> yeah, and they wouldn't have both been there, right? Like, mm. have you ever seen, I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's an example of this, but like a, a sort of het romance storyline where in the final kiss scene, the final kiss scene is actually with the ex-partner and the current partner is there, like, with his <laughs> arm around her. Like, no, that's too, it's too <laughs> subversive. That's too screwed up. It's like... Not, I mean, not really, obviously, but like in yeah. the in the world in the, of yeah. straight romance, like what you can't have that exactly. That's, like you can't have like there, there's. I mean, portrayals of like healthy polyamory and straight media are like so few and far between. I don't even know if I could name one off the top of my head. I'm sure. I mean, there are. isn't like um, the fact that it's a polyamorous relationship queering that relationship? Like exactly, yeah, exactly. So it just is so funny to me that by trying to be like, well, we can't actually show anything gay. We just have to sort of imply it. Let's like hush, hush kind of tamp down on the game. Yeah. We'll just a little, you like, you're like tamping down on it at the point, like the steam valve blows on the other end. And like, you just, you're, <laughs> this is a story about like a sort of poly open kind of thing, like, <laughs> which is so que- like, not obviously polyamory is not only for queer people, but like yeah. having that be something that's like, uh yeah so it comes up again this whole this whole sort of um question of like what is the nature of exclusivity in this kind of romantic coded relationship comes up again because kagami has this best friend from childhood he wears a ring on a chain around his neck Mm. throughout the show that's like the ring he exchanged with his childhood friend who then becomes one of the opponents blah 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 um but then there's this whole thing where kagami like mid basketball game he gives the ring to kuroko and he's like throw this away like i have to like break off this my emotional attachment to this relationship so i can defeat him (laughs) in this game and then after the game when they win kuroko comes back and is like oh by the way like here's your ring back i didn't throw it away he's like what and kuroko's like go find him you have to like (laughs) like so it's like kuroko's like enabling this sort of romantic 
coded resolution yeah. between Kagami and uh, Himura, his like Kagami's ex. Yeah, and it puts threatening way to Kagami and Kuroko relationship they then just go on afterwards and kagami keeps wearing his ring around his neck and like they keep going in the show and kagami and kuroko's relationship develops etc so it just you just invoke these these really like queer ideas of relationships and and relationship boundaries that you just wouldn't have if it was a if it was either a like straight romance or if it was a a gay story that was being played as a straight romance but with a gender swap right yeah i just love it so much it's so yeah there's just so many elements of this that i love yeah (laughs) i feel like you were gonna say something like 10 minutes ago in the middle Uh, of my rant and i just like probably because i was so in my feelings about uh (laughs) it's okay to be in your feelings about like that is the whole reason this podcast exists so we can get in our feelings yeah and i can be in other people's feelings just through an episode (laughs) so i wanted to talk a little bit about um there's this idea that i've come across just in my research that um basically um that things like manga and anime can have this, like you were saying, this transgressive element to them in which they Uh can show queerness and queer relationships and queer themes in a way that normal mainstream TV can't. Uh This idea keeps surfacing that manga and anime are places where transgressive behavior is allowed or lauded and they've been long been places where gay love stories are portrayed. So okay. it's interesting that you would choose um, Kuroko as something that is not explicitly queer, but mm-hmm. has elements, like you were saying, that are queer. And Exactly. Yeah, and having close male relationships that um, are defined, as we were talking about before, by what they're not, as opposed to what they are. Yeah. And there's a real, I think there's a really interesting discussion to be had about um, for me about Kuroko's basketball versus something like Yuri on Ice, which mm. is um, uh, also a sports anime. Yeah. Also like queer coded, but goes a step further in that like the two male leads, as far as we can tell, are actually in a relationship. They kiss like and on they, screen. They in exchange the show. rings. They exchange rings. They yeah, do that. exactly. And um, everyone's like, and oh, you're married. And they're just like, they don't say anything. They're just like yeah, well. yeah. So there's still there's still ways that it's a little bit kind of um. Vague. But we're not strictly saying yeah. exactly what happened here, but like they kiss on screen, it happens. <laughs> um, and I like, I sort of want to talk a little a little bit about this the kind of difference for me as an individual fan, specifically like a queer and also ace fan, because I. I don't want to downplay by any means how huge Yuri on Ice is for like uh, as a oh it has a step it reached me so okay people, like, it's huge it's huge like and it's such a big deal and it's so great it's such a like there's so many more steps we still have to take but Yuri on Ice is a great it's a good step a really yeah, mainstream anime absolutely. and the two main male characters kiss and like that's huge so I just I want to like <laughs> I don't know uh, um. Uh, what is the word I'm looking for? 
explore um, hedge, hedge my comment here with oh, like okay. from a like political large scale queer perspective Yuri on Ice is amazing and we need like 10 more of that plus 20 more that go 20 times further yeah, okay. absolutely that established for me as a fan personally I did I watched Yuri on Ice and I didn't connect with it um, it has the relationship between the two characters because it's framed it's framed as a romance in this very like het way like it that i would see as an example of you've taken a like het romance with all of the tropes and switched the genders of one of the characters and that's that's like that for all all kinds of reasons for all kinds of people that's super important and 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 good for me i didn't connect with it it didn't resonate with like a broader queer sensibility to me um in the way that, that i'm upset i'm obsessed with kuroko's basketball i'm obsessed with kagabi <laughs> and kuroko who never kiss on screen um and i i i uh it, it i don't even know how to say this like yuri on ice is so seems so this i'm struggling so hard not to tie this back to uh, that other topic that we're absolutely not going to talk about. <laughs> like, there's such a difference. There's such a difference to me between like s- s- stories that are queer in in a in a really broad way, in a way that kind of reaches out and affects every piece of the story. Which yeah. to me is what Kuroko's basketball is. Probably not even intentionally. Yeah, like, I think it's more this it's the sort of ironic side effect of by trying to hide the queerness, you end up bringing it out. Mm. Um, I have this whole other like, like thing about as the stakes keep getting higher and higher in Kuroko's basketball, but you can't escalate the relationships on these regular romantic, you know, escalators, you end up invoking all these like kink and BDSM tropes, mm. like as they get up into the, their final battles with Rakuzan, which is this other opponent that they have, the like former, um, former uh former teammate now opponent of kuroko's uh is named akashi and his he's like clearly a sadist has like there it really develops this kind of uh like really DS intense overtones you're like not allowed to make eye contact with him he like cuts kagami with a pair of scissors at <laughs> one point like you're really escalating into like fringe sexualities without ever actually saying that that's what you're doing and like that's so queer yeah <laughs> embedding like concepts of kink and bdsm into your like sort of portrayal of a relationship is like that's gay man <laughs> in like this sort of in this really broad like cultural way that's so interesting to me and that's something that like if you're looking at i now i haven't watched yuri on ice in a while it's possible yeah. i'm like missing something but like it when i watched when i watched that i was like oh this is cute it's a romance uh, they're boys i like that uh, but that's kind of be- but it's now it's so constrained yeah because it's following the tropes yeah that that's sufficient there's no there's no need it's so i love this idea that the more constrained you are creatively the more uh, uh it's this thing i just said a minute ago about like the steam valve exploding right? yeah if you have the option to use the tropes and put them on the escalator and follow that and the viewers will understand what's going on then you do that and that's like okay and then they kissed at the end and like, mm. okay i'm like bored i'm bored i want them to be like dramatically okay in this 
this this basketball game and these two like episodes of Kuroko's basketball that this podcast is technically about. Yes, which are episode thirty nine <laughs> and forty. Where, like, yeah, Kuroko's gonna do his fancy move, and Aomine closes his eyes, which means that Kuroko's like direction doesn't work so he's able to block this move and everybody's like how how could he do that and and it's like because of his past with Kuroko and their bond he could like sense his breath to like know which way if he was going to go left or right even though he had his eyes like oh my god I'm dying I'm dead Um, (laughs) and like there's no you don't need to do things like that if they can kiss right so so taking out the obvious element which is this the sexual or romantic relationship between two characters and to portray that you have to make it um more explicit in other ways exactly you have to go like 10 times more extreme yes than if you could just have them you know say i love you on a coffee date and make eyes at each other and then kiss 80 episodes later but if you're not going to do that it's like i guess what the motivation for not doing that is bad the idea that well we can't show an actual queer relationship because of you know moral reasons that's bad very bad get rid of that but the effect that it has this sort of ironic outcome of you just made this 1000 times more gay than it would have been if you actually made a game. <laughs> yeah. So because cool like me, if it's, I just love it so much. Yeah, because like say Yuri on Ice, like, um, it's I would say that that's an explicit relationship. So right. the moving up to the part where they actually like I would say that they get into the relationship, um, up to, to like episode ten, I think is is the one where it's like the the plot twist is revealed and um mm-hmm. they kind of exchange rings and mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So um that's kind of like when they exchange rings, it's like, oh, so they're in a relationship now. We don't have to try so hard to um to like show that they care about each other. Yeah. So when we're sort of on the escalator. Yeah. And so if we're not, if we're taking out the romantic, the explicit romantic tenant of the relationship, we have to show how much these characters care about each other. So when they're talking to them, to each other about like, oh, like, um, like uh, Kagami and Kuroko are talking about the game in episode, I think it's, was it? 39 or 40 um Mm. when uh they take a break and uh kuroko goes outside and then kagami Mm -hmm. brings him back his jacket and i can't remember exactly what they say but it's um but they have this little heart to heart and then it it kind of shows how much they care about each other because kagami Mm -hmm. brings kuroko his jacket you know he like went out there to cheer him up and and sexually explicitly said and um yeah and then after that um Kagami kind of realizes he relies too much on Kuroko and that's suppressing his abilities. So Kagami's true strength is when he becomes Kuroko's savior instead of being saved yeah. by him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like having that kind of uh element to their relationship is like 
much more effective than them saying, oh, I love you and just leaving it at that or like them kissing right. or whatever. So yeah, it, like you have to show if you're not having the I love yous or the kisses or whatever, you have to show in other ways how much these characters care about each other. Yeah. I just, it's been, I keep talking about this like relationship escalator because this yeah. is a concept that's really interesting to me of the like sort of straight, like, you know, uh, constant escalation thing of like you meet someone and then you hold hands and then you kiss and then you have sex yeah. and then you move in together and then you get engaged and then you get married and then you have kids and then you buy a house and then you're like blah 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 <laughs> and it's like if you've taken out the escalator they're gonna have to like parkour up the side of the building <laughs> how much more fun is that right so yeah that's awesome uh, and then there's this whole other there's this other side to it too as well that I really wanted to touch on which is as like an ace person like not that i'm not interested in like things that have you know more explicit like i read fan fiction i'm there it's fine <laughs> but for when it's something where i'm trying to like be really in the story about it and mm. like sort of sort of you know identify with the relationship and stuff like that i don't totally remember maybe you can refresh my memory but i think it's implied in yuriana ice that they sleep together like yuri like stays overnight in his room, I don't um, remember the guy. I, from what I understand, like um, from what I understand is that uh, Victor is always trying to sleep in Yuri's bed because he thinks right. they're in a relationship. Like he's he's right, under right. the impression that they really like each other and that they care about it. It's a mutual thing, and like it is, yeah. but. Um, that Yuri doesn't like know that it's mutual <laughs> and Victor yeah. is like let's sleep together let's go to the hot springs I'm naked in your bath like or whatever like yeah. so yeah that's that's how I so, understand yeah. it yeah so sort of assuming that 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 it's that it's pretty uh I have this memory of watching Yuri Yuri on ice and ha- and of there being this scene which I may have fabricated in my mind which is like maybe after they exchange the rings or something and then like Yuri comes out of you know what you see in a show somebody comes out of somebody else's bedroom in the morning and mm. the implication is that there was sex going on previously <laughs> and so that obviously nothing like that I shouldn't say obviously but nothing like that happens in Kuroko's basketball yep. it's not for one thing they're like I don't know like supposed to be like 14 or 15 yeah, so yeah. let's just not pretend that's the case because they, they whatever forget it but there's no, there's no nothing even remotely like that goes on and so for me when I'm trying when I mm, I wrote down some notes about this because I knew I was going to lose when a relationship that I'm identifying with in a TV show escalates to the point of being like canon yeah. in a way, as like, okay, this is canon, they're together now. I I have this, it's a real, <laughs> I hate saying this because I want, like, we need queer canon representation. Just take that <laughs> as a given. Just assume that I'm like totally pro this. As, <laughs> as a totally one individual single person, with my really specific experiences and identities, that's almost, it's like a loss for me Mm. when they make it canon because I suddenly lose control of the boundaries of the relationship. Like, Yuri and Victor are sleeping together and I'm not really into that as a like, as if I was identifying with that relationship. That's like not what I want to happen in my relationships. And that's what happens in like 99.99999% of like, there's so, I mean, there's almost no, so little portrayal of asexuality in, um, uh, in media and like particularly like in 
relationships that are also queer in other capacities, like gender-wise or, or whatever. So for me, I can, I can completely like put myself in this relationship with Kuroko and Kagami. I can, mm. I can identify with Kuroko, who's the like, you might, he like doesn't really have a personality. He's like there for you to like completely be. project onto. I, yeah, I can completely project on him because there's no because I know because I've seen the show and I know it's it's all going to be just queer coding. It's all going to be subtext. There's no threat to me that I'm then going to need to remove myself from identifying with that yeah with that yeah, relationship yeah. before it escalates to a point that I don't that I don't want it to but like the 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 things that are so it's kind of this perfect storm of one because the relationship is never made explicit it remains like safe for me to identify with it and then two be it has all of these like these elements we were talking about that are like these really intense emotional and like quasi sensual kind of kind of elements that are it's just perfect and if it <laughs> if they made it canon if Kuroko and Kagami kissed and then Kuroko came out of Kagami's room the next morning that would be I'm like actually upset you think about that I'm like gonna cry that would that would, that would hurt me that would be yeah. bad for me as a person because I'm really I'm so invested in this as like as what it's portrayed as yeah which is kind of like a queer platonic slash romantic asexual yeah relationship which you never see if it's a real quote-unquote canon canon romance so I just I just (laughs) I love being queer baited because it's the (laughs) only way this is the worst take anyone nobody quote me out of context on this this is the worst take of all time i love being queer baited it's the only way i can be safe in in a in a fictional relationship that i'm identifying with until we're like way way far ahead in like time and we have like you know interesting portrayals of 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 relationships with asexual people demisexual relationships things like that um the the queer baby ones are are the ones where I where I see myself because they're the ones where they don't fucking have sex like right it's, yeah ah, exactly yeah, so yeah no that's totally valid I think that's absolutely valid I think about it a lot <laughs> yeah I just my problem is that when they do have um, ships become canon uh, most of the time obviously they're heterosexual ships so I'm not like super invested into them but um when they do make ships canon it uh it's usually bad it's usually real fucking bad (laughs) and uh they will either like turn the female character into like a complete shrew and she's like domineering in the relationship and like but i can think of one example where that doesn't happen and where it has actually been a good example of characters getting together and that's um uh, in Brooklyn Nine Nine, Peralta and Santiago. I don't know if you oh, watched yeah? that show. No, I um, haven't. Yeah, but that was actually a really good pairing for me because I really enjoyed them getting together. But at the same time, yeah. it's like their relationship was built on this kind of rivalry between them, and it was like the whole tension between them was that they they obviously like really liked each other, but 
they kind of took that out on each other and so they were mm-hmm. kind of a little bit mean to each other and then when they started dating of course the meanness kind of got stripped away because it turns out mm. they actually liked each other and they could process those emotions in a healthy way <laughs> so yeah. in doing that in being able to process those emotions in a healthy way it kind of stripped a little bit of what i really found appealing about their relationship mm-hmm. so <laughs> i can understand how you would be reticent to like accept a ship becoming canon when it turns the relationship into something that it wasn't before yeah yeah well and something you said in there just really made me think too the the idea of like the woman becomes the shrew once Mm. they get together because you have to introduce drama and tension yeah and drama and and what drama could there possibly have be other than like if it if a ship is going to be canon if a story is a romance then like arc wise what you usually see is that it's the it's the end like that's mm. the sort of the sort of self-revelation at the very very end of the story is that the two characters get together and then you have this like fairy tale problem of like and then they lived happily ever after I yeah guess. like that's that's it that's that's the end goal is for them to get together so there's really like fewer opportunities to explore the nuances of what that might actually look like like what if i want to know what these characters would actually be like together yeah and when when the when the relationship is not necessarily totally following that path of this is a romance story so they're going to get together at the very end you end up with these really more interesting pieces like mm. for example they basically quote unquote get together like pretty much at the beginning and then they have this falling out at one point where kagami thinks or kagami says something like i rely on you too much you know that's not how we're gonna win and he kind of goes <laughs> off and trains by himself and kuroko like thinks that he's been dumped again that this Aww. is Aomine. like he has a flashback to aomine being like the only one who can beat me is me and like <laughs> not doing the fist bump but it turns out they resolve it later because it turns out that what kagami meant it was this big misunderstanding kagami meant he needed to become stronger so that he could be a stronger like part of their little unit (laughs) Um, and then kind of from then on the like relationship between the two of them is reaffirmed and then they go on to like fight Amine shortly after this but so it means that we actually get to see sort of developments and interesting things happen in their kind of bond there's this thing Mm. with like Kagami's sort of ex with the ring situation because we're not we're not following this they must be constantly torn apart until the very very end when they can get together yeah it's more it's a more interesting relationship to me because we can see these uh the like what the relationship actually looks Mm. like if we just accept that this is the relationship because if you go into it with this idea of nothing is a relationship unless it's uh you know clearly delineated romantic with kissing probably sexual relationship everything else doesn't count yet it's not they're not together yet until Mm. they kiss um then then you don't get this opportunity to say like this is the relationship it's either a queer platonic relationship or it's a romantic asexual relationship and this is what we're seeing is like interesting things happen and their relationship continues developing through it it's just so much more interesting to me than we're just waiting 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 for them to eventually get together Ugh, yeah. subversion. I love subverting. Exactly. No, that's really cool. <laughs> I was just thinking about how um, 
how I was thinking about Eleanor and Chidi from The Good Place and how yeah. um, once they got together, it became like about them as a couple as opposed mm-hmm. to like bettering themselves together but also individually. And then mm-hmm. it just became kind of about them as a unit. And I was like, like, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't, I can't even articulate like what I don't like about it or why I don't like it. Um, mm. It just was like, yeah, I, mm, I can't think of it. No, no I, I, th- I hear you though. Like once there's certain molds and once, once you acknowledge that you're doing something in that, yes in that mold it becomes kind of limiting yes yeah you that's that's what it's i was thinking it's hard to break back out of that again yeah it does become quite limiting so um because it then relies on the tropes of a romantic mm-hmm. relationship so if they were building a relationship that is not based on romantic tropes then they can be free to explore pretty much anything they want to but as soon mm-hmm. as it becomes about the romance, then they trap themselves in the romantic tropes that they have to adhere to in order to make yeah. it a believable romance. Exactly. Mm. So, yeah, I, I completely understand what you mean about um, not wanting things to be canon because um, that then traps the relationship and it makes it less interesting. Yeah. So let's dismantle the, like, cis-heteropatriarchy as a whole, and then we can have all kinds of romances in all kinds of media, and they can be every, like, gender combination and queer and straight and all this kind of stuff. And, like, the... the <laughs> let's do that, and one. let's, like, have a cup of tea. And... <laughs> all right, well, that's the plan. I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> Okay, you do that, and I'll I'll do okay. that, and then we'll just meet back here in, like, 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Let's check back in shortly. Just BRB, dismantling, you know, the karaoke. <sighs> but, like, we are, right? So, okay, I actually have a little story about this, because, and then I, hopefully, maybe this is, like, a nice, a nice uh, kind of place to, uh, I don't know. Okay, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but I maybe will, and we'll see if it comes out okay, well. Okay, yeah. So... We're making. Yeah, we can always like cut it to... if you want to. <laughs> so, like, man, how do I even start talking about this? It's so it's tough being a creator, right? Yeah. Because you don't. It's so hard. There's so the structures are so rigid that we're like up against. Be and when I talk about when I'm saying being a creator, I mean like being someone who's trying to like use creativity to like dismantle shit. Yeah. Um, it just feels like you're just chipping away at this totally impossible thing. And like, what is me writing one fan fiction really ever going to do? Like, make me very happy. Your fan fiction makes me very happy. (laughs) I got a really beautiful, I'm not going to talk about the, what actual fandom this is in. I got a beautiful (laughs) message from somebody. The fandom we met in. You'll have to guess. You can all. Yeah. So I got this beautiful message. I wrote this fic that where both of the characters were aced um and i got this beautiful and it wasn't even very long it was only like seven thousand words or something and i got this this comment at one point from someone who was like oh this is great like i really enjoyed this and then i'm like oh thanks and then they came back um it was maybe like a couple weeks later and i got a follow-up comment that was like hey um you know sorry i hope this isn't like weird i just i keep coming back to this story because it was like the final like the final straw in me like 
realizing something about myself. I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. Um, Yeah. So I just, so there's moments like that where you're like, this matters. This, Mm. I was reading this um, interview with this author. Oh God, now I can't remember her name. She just got this, had this book come out called I'm Lying, but I'm Telling the Truth. And it's about her like living with, um, uh, a sort of mental illness thing. Oh, this isn't going to make any sense. Whatever. She did this interview where basically she was saying that if there's one person, there was this point where she decided that it didn't seem like there was anybody out there like her, but maybe there was one. Maybe there was this one other person who was going through what she was going through and she was going to connect with that person and that was it. And then she like wrote this book, which is like huge and getting all this attention and stuff, whatever. Okay. All of this is rambling to say that like Kuroko's basketball, (laughs) <laughs> yeah the the whoever made this show for whatever motivations they had in making it could not possibly have predicted what is going on with me in my life right now as yeah. I'm as I'm rewatching this show and the meaning that it has for me because you were kind of asking me like what got me into this show and so I'm doing this rewatch right now and I'm rewatching it with my I said my roommate who's actually my my ex-husband who I live with with our very young son so we like broke up about a year, we broke up about a year and a half ago and then now we like still live together but are like trying to have really good boundaries around like how emotionally invested we are in each other's relationship blah 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 this is important i promise yeah so we like started re-watching kuroko's basketball together um because we like we both like anime but he's more of a like naruto and i'm more of a like slice of life romance and like oh like sports anime really like hits both of those points watching it for like the sports part and like the teamwork and the like overcoming of obstacles via like effort and I'm like sad gay boys in love this is my jam (laughs) so it like works but the thing is like this this so we're like you know every like couple of nights I'm like hey you want to watch a couple episodes of basketball feelings and it's this nice little like bonding grounding experience for us as kind of like roommates as opposed to spouses which is like a whole thing but here's the thing. So my like ex-husband is straight. Right. And I like basically only hang out with gay people now. I'm like, this is all I do. <laughs> That's what it's happens when you become, that. when you find out you're queer, like your entire yeah. social circle suddenly becomes so much queerer. Exactly. It's like all gays all the time. Exactly. <laughs> but so to have this, this little space where I'm like watching this show and I'm like getting all up in my feelings about Kuroko and Kagami, which like he knows, like I have a, I have a, a, yeah okay i have a, a steve bucky tattoo like i'm he, everybody knows i'm like i'm like i'm a shipper okay so so i'm like freaking out about kuroko and kagami and to have my like ex-husband hand me like the couch cushion that i can so i can scream into it it's just this such a beautiful experience of being seen in my queerness yeah by a person i wouldn't otherwise necessarily Aww. be connecting with on that level yeah and it's just it like it just like helps uh, us me like knit together this kind of complicated family that I have with like my son and his dad and like nobody you would not nobody making Kuroko's basketball could possibly ever predict yeah predict that but like that's what it is it's like really important to my life right now it's part of me being seen as a queer person by somebody that I love and I'm in a complicated kind of relationship with so Mm. it's man it's good I fucking love this show. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I'm so glad that you can like connect with something that just seems like 
just you know some random thing that just happens to be one of the most important things in your life like I felt that about the various fandoms that I've been in and the times that I've been in them and they've just helped me through so much and they've helped me discover so many things about myself and about how I see the world and how I interact with other people and like helped me develop into who I am today and it's because of these like shows that I like or the movies that I like or whatever or like music or and it's just helped me like grow into the person that I am today yeah absolutely Hmm. yeah shipping is like really important (laughs) TLDR Absolutely. Yeah, I wouldn't have been nearly as invested in anything that I've been invested in, uh, aside from music maybe, if um if I hadn't been shipping like Dean Cass or Yeah, um, yeah. You know, like whatever. I don't even can't even remember the the fandoms that I've been in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's so it's so important. I just like Man, it's, I'm I'm not gonna make this about about what it's about, but like this tattoo that I have, like I got it. Tell um, me what it like, is. You have to tell me. Well, so it's I'll send you a picture, but it's okay. like it's like the it's on my left arm, just a little bit below the elbow. So you see it if I've got my if I've got my sleeves rolled up, and it's like facing me. It's on the inside of my arm, so I'm looking at it right now, and it's like maybe about like three inches across or so, and it's like Bucky's shoulder. So it's got the star. It's just mm. it's red lines. Mm. It's the star, and then it's got these lines coming out from it in the pattern of the shoulder plates. Mm. But then the lines end in. Uh, uh, it's like the outline of a circle and it's if you were to overlay the shield on top of this like the arm mm. like if the star of the arm was also the star of the shield this circle would be one of the one of the lines of of the shield yeah, um, yeah. That sounds this awesome. isn't gonna make us a description i'll send you a picture yes, but please send me so picture. it's so it's so important to me this like it's the only tattoo that i have it's my first one and it is just I have it in this visible place because for me it's like a reminder that I don't want to code switch anymore. Like I'm queer all the time. Mm. I just am. Like it's there. You can see it. Sorry, um, what's code and, switching? What was that? What's code switching? Like like um uh oh I'm kind of surrounded by straight people, so I'm gonna act more straight or speak in a. Uh, uh, and then okay, now I'm around queer people, so I can like be myself and say and 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 do things that are um it's basically like adjusting your language and behavior okay for the group that you're in to like okay oh i never heard of that yeah so i mean basically the idea that like i don't i don't want to be I want to be just like out all the time. Yeah. So I have this tattoo that is in a place that you can see it almost all the time. Um, that is like explicitly about, to me, it's about queerness. It's about this like gay <laughs> ship relationship yeah. that I'm obsessed with, but it's, and it's also like, it's a, I, I got this shortly after a movie that shall not be named came out <laughs> because I needed to like reaffirm the, some stuff that we're not going to talk about, but like it, it also is like me coming out as ace like a while ago, yeah. like a whole thing. And so this, this tattoo for me, it's also, it's about the fandom and the, the community and, um, like connecting with other queer people and like the idea that I still have access to like pleasure and, and joy and stuff. Yeah. And it, it just, um, it's also, it's like over, 
the spot where it is like just below my elbow on the inside of my arm here is where I had an IV in during like a really traumatic medical experience, which is like, there's like a Bucky connection there. And it's, mm. it was about like re reaffirming my like autonomy over my body and like choosing what, Oh my God. It's so, and it all like, it all is really intimately connected to this ship. That's amazing. It's, it's huge in my, in my, in my life. And it's just such a source of, um, uh, of affirmation and joy for me. That's to, amazing. Uh, think about these relationships yeah. and like the, you know, either the ones that we see on screen or the ones that people, um, you know, the variations that people come up with in, in fandom, like that's where I see myself is, mm. is in these, um, in these things. So anyway, that ended up not being very related to Kuroko's basketball. No, Although I am cool. thinking about like expanding the tattoo at some point and there's going to be like probably a Kuroko Kagami element in there. <laughs> we'll see. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, I think I covered, or... I think I covered all of my, um, all of my points there. Yeah. I'm just feeling really warm and fuzzy. That's awesome. Sad gay boys in love. Yeah. Just that's well that's I will happiness. not I uh I will not watch this show again but <laughs> it brought me some joy so yay it did bring me some joy oh good well I'm glad <laughs> yeah okay well thank you so much for being on the show um is there oh anything gosh, thank you for having me yeah no it was great um is there anything you'd like to plug like um I don't know, a specific episode of the show you think everyone should watch or maybe even your Twitter profile or if you want to or something like that. Yeah, well, your your first episode on uh, on asexuality and in, in uh, Captain Marvel was really interesting oh, to me. I always you. want people to be like taking in more more media and commentary and critique that's about uh, ace stuff and folks can find me on Twitter at uh, panacea knits. Oh, that's how you pronounce it, panacea. Mhm. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll link that in the show notes if you like. Cool, yeah, that'd yeah. be great. Okay. That's it for this episode. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at Queer As Media um, and WordPress at queerasmedia.wordpress.com. The show also has a Patreon, so if you feel like chucking a couple bucks my way, that would be very cool. It's patreon.com slash queerasmedia. If you would also like to guest on an episode of Sexuality, feel free to hit me up in the DMs at either Twitter or Instagram or email the show at queerasmedia at gmail.com. Bye!